strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Ring trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. What happened, Gandalf? Why didn't you meet us? Oh, I'm sorry, Frodo. I was delayed. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Many Meetings, our 10th episode on 2001's The Lord of the Ring, The Fellowship of the Ring. Our party finally arrives at Rivendell, full of reunions and exposition. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. I am going to skip over my normal Patreon plugs here today and do a little bit of news up top, as The Fellowship of the Ring was just added to the National Film Registry as maintained by the Library of Congress. They select 25 movies every year for various reasons. Uh, The Fellowship of the Ring is only the second movie from the year 2001, joining Shrek, (laughs) of all films. (laughs) Um, Other notable films, uh, ones that are important to me that were added this year, is The Return of the Jedi, Um, The Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars 1977 were already in there, I believe, but there has been some sort of a grassroots campaign, for lack of a better word, to uh, get Return (laughs) of the Jedi included as well. Some other notable movies are uh, Selena, the 1997 film where Jennifer Lopez made her acting debut, Nightmare on Elm Street, the Freddy Krueger movie, Wall-E from 2008, the Pixar film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and John Waters' Pink Flamingos. So, for today's discussion, we want to talk a little bit about the whole idea of the eagle should have just flown the ring to Mordor or rode someone on their back to Mordor, and why that argument is dumb as hell. Emily? (laughs) Yeah, so um, there's like been a recent trend. I say recent, but I think this is definitely like kind of the last 10, 12-ish years um, towards insisting on like this this kind of like nebulous concept of like perfect logic in all stories so you as the audience the reader the viewer whatever have this vision of what is perfectly logical and what each step um would like what the most logical outcome for each step of the way of a story is um and um because you have that in your head um there is somehow a fault with the story if it doesn't follow that that logic that that you've come up with um and and that is i I would say quite a recent trend and quite a frustrating one because um it ignores uh the whole purpose of of stories really which is not to be logical it's it's to tell stories that are interesting and and to you know talk about things um and and you know like either the like frailty of of human beings or like the kind of like anarchic way uh, in which we like interact with one another um, and logic is not necessarily something that should uh, come into play with these um, and I think like especially recently we've seen it a lot with like The Last Jedi I, I, uh, I tremble to bring up The Last Jedi because of what that Pandora's box is but you know people getting mad about like the Holdo maneuver and whether or not that is like possible according to the rules of physics ignoring the fact that in the Star Wars universe there is like a magical force um, 
or, you know, like uh, this really grating and awful overuse of the term plot hole. Um, and, you know, we've talked about like the Wikipediafication of entertainment. And I think those things kind of go hand in hand. Um, this discourse about whether or not like Guayher or any of the other eagles should have carried Frodo uh, to Mount Doom, I think definitely fits into that. Um, and, and for me, um, the reason why it it's completely insensible to to bring up as a like a, a discussion topic or like a thing to argue about is that it would have destroyed the narrative of Lord of the Rings uh, if if Tolkien had said right the eagles will fly uh, Frodo to Mount Doom then there is no Lord of the Rings book um, and that is ridiculous um, and I think you know further to that um, at least in the context of the books um, Gwai here the the Wind Lord who's like the the chief of the the eagles straight up says, I'm not a taxi service. Um, I have no interest in ferrying people around. Um, and, and sort of implicit in that is also, um, you know, Sauron would see them coming from a thousand miles away. Um, and it's the same reason why, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, you know, why they don't bring uh, Glorfindel with them, um, because they're going for stealth uh, and, instead of uh, whatever seems most logical to humorless nerds. Um, but, you know, None of this to me really matters. The question of import here is what would it have done for the the narrative, the story, if Gwaihir had flown them direct to Mount Doom? And the answer is it would have completely destroyed it. So why does it matter? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do my best to not just repeat Emily, but honestly, they nailed it on the head. I will basically agree with all her points in reverse order. First of all, what matters is this story, and through that, its themes, its characters, the way it speaks to the human condition, and the human heart in conflict with itself. Narrative is not a puzzle to be solved. Our job as the audience is not to solve the problem of the plot, but to divine what the work might be saying about war, pacifism, industrialization, and how it is in dialogue with other works in the genre and medium. Emily is more learned than I, so she went with Glorfindel, but for the film's sake, the obvious analog might be Legolas. Hell, if he can take down an Oliphant by himself, he's probably the most capable purely by skill, even though, yes, I know the Oliphant only counts as one. <laughs> and while I personally would enjoy nine hours of Orlando Bloom flipping on horses and sliding on shields, again, that is not the story being told. At a certain point, people just need to grapple with the text, which will naturally lead to grappling with its subtext and its metatext. None of this is addressed by the eagles taking the ring to Mordor. And yeah, this is all a symptom of the wickification of culture and trying to come up with plot holes for the next Cinema Sins think piece. I don't want to blame any auteur or work for this, which goes back a long ways, but recently I somewhat feel like Nolan films and Breaking Bad, which are both things I love, have broken people's brains a bit. Those stories tend to be tightly weaved plots, working like clockwork so all the gears and mechanisms lock into place at the right moment, which is great. I love Inception and Walter White, but that's but one way to tell a compelling story. On the flip side of that is that if you combine all the Nolan films, save maybe Interstellar, they don't have the emotionality or joy or even a tenth of the Lord of the Rings films. And that's okay too. Not all stories need to hit the same notes and can be described with the same tools. Arc, trope, fan service, sticking the landing, and on the nose are popular terms in the discourse these days, and often they carry a specific connotation, usually negative. I just implore you to not limit yourself to these tools, lest you cut yourself off from other media that matters. 
And honestly, this is kind of why I avoid spoilers in full and try to avoid any any of that discussion on social media. Too often, from Thrones to Avengers to whatever else, spoilers will leak and there will be a big back and forth on Twitter reacting to literal bullet points of what happens instead of seeing how it is brought to life in context with the film's tone and an actor's performance. It's stripping away the actual experience of enjoying and appreciating art into reading a Wikipedia article about what happens, which sucks. Okay, I'll stop ranting. <laughs> See, I think it's really funny that you bring up um, spoilers and you avoiding spoilers because like, I, I think quite accurately you say that it leads to this really awful discourse because for that exact reason, I have no problem with spoilers um, and um, it drives people around me crazy, but I will pretty much always read the plots to movies before I watch them because I'm like, if I know the story in advance, it leaves me ready to evaluate the film on everything or the you know the film or the book or whatever on everything else that it that it's doing everything else that's going on everything else that went into it um, and I, I will say this is also largely because uh, my eyes are so bad that half the time I can't see what's going on on screen but like hearing you say that I'm like oh wow yeah there is like a, a different way to come to the exact same conclusion by doing literally the opposite thing so it's just really funny to hear you say that. Yeah, my my spoiler stance is very much a personal stance. It's not prescriptive how I believe everyone should feel about spoilers, but it's just the way I find myself enjoying media the best. And it's also because I've seen I've seen a lot of just bad discourse. Like people like would get leaks and be like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. This is gonna be awful. This is the worst thing ever. And then you watch it in context, it's like, oh yeah, that was actually pretty dope. Um, yep. which, you know, and that's again just a personal opinion. I also like narrative surprise, maybe more so than most. Uh when we get to the two towers, I had no idea that movie was gonna start with a falling dragon battle through <laughs> the depths of Moria. <laughs> and that that's part of the reason it remains one of my favorite films, because I just didn't see it coming. Yeah, no, that's absolutely brilliant. And I think like as we get into some of the, more of the discussion for uh for today's episode, I'm I'm gonna be really interested to hear like for you as someone who saw it without like any prior context, uh or like cultural or book wise, like I'll be really interested to know what like your like initial reaction was to a lot of these scenes. <laughs> yeah, so why don't we get into it? Woohoo. Wake up, Frodo. It's the 1980s. Going through that comfortable experience we all know and love, having a man you've never met before stand over you and whisper a foreign language in your face while you're absolutely blitzed, Frodo is welcome to Rivendell. Where am I? He asked quite reasonably, and we are once again treated to a scene that mirrors perfectly a scene in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Oh, 2001. What a strange year you were. Just in cinema, though. Everything else about the year 2001, I've been told, was totally normal. You are in the house of Elrond. And it is 10 o'clock in the morning, on October the 24th, if you want to know. Gandalf, says Frodo, you lazy prick. Yeah, again, you had one job and you screwed even that up. Is that so, answers Gandalf, tearing off his robes to reveal his number one travel agent for guilt trips t-shirt. Do you want to know where I've been, Frodo? Cue Gandalf the Swiffer Mop, getting his ass dragged there and back again across the top of Orthanc by Saruman the Very Tidy. 
Embrace the power of the ring or embrace your own destruction, says Saruman in the second very 1980s music video shot of this scene. There is only one Lord of the Ring, says Gandalf, in case you hadn't yet clocked who that is. And who is that Lord of the Ring? Well, it's George Mothkai, of course, back from the trenches and this time with allies. Gandalf base jumps onto Gwaihir, and together they coast off into the night, ghost riders in the sky. Return to Rivendell, and the first bit of immense acting from Sean Astin that always gets me weepy. Listen to his little voice crack in You're Awake and tell me that isn't absolutely heart-wrenching. Also, please welcome to the stage Elrond Half-Elven, who has at this moment one of the most insane wigs in the film, and some of the loveliest embroidery. The duality of man? Half-man? The thing about Rivendell is that it's a painted come to life, and this movie really doesn't want you to forget it. It's a city in permanent autumn, golden-hued and cast in half-light, glorious even in its fading. The choral music swells as we are b- brought into Rivendell proper for the first time, and Frodo's reunions with Merry and Pippin are, even in slow motion, the fastest-moving things we see. The elves may be a springless autumn, but the hobbits are an autumnless spring. Or mostly autumnless, because Zoinks, Bilbo's looking rough, isn't he? And here, Frodo shows one of the greatest acts of mer- mercy in the entire series— if I were Frodo and I knew Bilbo's brain got me shanked by a Mogoth, I'd have drop kicked him off the highest waterfall in Rivendell. But Frodo shows mercy. Sigh. I guess it's fine, at least, because Bilbo's finished his book and time for the film to drop some lovely references to The Hobbit. You know, Mirkwood, The Lonely Mountain, Erebor, and hey, even an absolutely beautiful hand-drawn map of the Shire. There's some brief character development, Frodo realizing that holy shit, growing up sucks, and then we're back to the big boys. Ho-hum, ho-hum, Gandalf and Elrond are grumpy old bastards. Elrond, perhaps more justifiably so than Gandalf. The ring is a curse. The strength of men is failing. My future son-in-law is a moron. These are the times that try elves' souls, truly. And then, and then... Boromir, my king. Legolas, lit like Rita Hayworth in Gilda. Gimli, looking like what Londoners think the Tartan army is. Behold, the Fellowship. Don't worry, though. We've got a few seconds spare for Elrond to say some wildly out-of-pocket shit about the various races of Middle-earth before we cut to more development about Isildur's terrible, horrible, nigh-unreversible fuck-up. More discourse on that later. After that, Boromir's villain entrance. Blue light, heavy shadows, spooky music, two 40-year-old men trying to outbrood one another, like two emo mountain goats beating each other to death with black and pink horns. An ancient artifact suffers some unbelievable disrespect. That belongs in a museum! And then it's time for some coochie coo with Arwen and Aragorn. As someone who emotionally never matured past believing in cooties, I find this scene nauseating, but I will endeavor to treat it with some respect. Aragorn and Arwen have a conversation I'm sure they're both sick of having, Arwen insisting she is an adult, fully capable of making her own decisions about her fate, and Aragorn deciding that that's not her prerogative. Arwen gets a phenomenal line in there about love and death, to which our bimbo king is left speechless. Chicks rock. Chicks rock. I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of this world alone. So our sequences today open up with Frodo being healed in the house of Elrond, and we are given an exact time and date, 10 a.m. on October 24th, to basically confirm that their calendar, at least in the yearly sense, is basically ours. We'll ignore all the Shire Reckoning, King's Reckoning, Stuart's Reckoning, and all that other stuff we've talked about before. 
The part I like to highlight about this is that when Sam rushes into the room, he grabs Frodo's hand. And this was at the direction of Ian McKellen, who told uh, the actors, Sean and Elijah, that fans would be looking for Sam to grab his hand. Yeah, and this is, I think, one of the really interesting bits of like cinematic history for how this story gets told about this scene, because um, in the immediate aftermath of the film, um, Ian McKellen was a lot more coy about it and was sort of saying, you know, fans would be looking for it because it's sort of more canonical that way. Um, and as the years passed, he changes his tune a bit. And I don't think it's a sign of him revising what his initial intentions were. I think he is able to be more honest as the years have passed, um, which is to say he said you know, that small touch would be something that gay fans would recognize as a, a, a common touch, um, as like a, a sign of some sort of like either like ro- like queer, romantic or platonic love. Um, and he was insistent on having that in there. Um, and as the years passed, was able to kind of identify that as something that he understood from, you know, his really like as a gay man, his relationship to the queer community, but also his relationship to queer art and literature. Um, and I just think it is uh, just an absolutely delightful detail. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. And um, I can't quite remember what, um, you know, Ian McKellen being out to the public, what his timeline was with that. Not that it matters, but um, I I don't remember watching this or the X-Men films at the time and thinking of him as a gay actor. He might have been, but I was also a young kid. Um, And by young, I mean 18 or 19. So um, I was not fully aware of that. But I can see as, you know, society ostensibly has gotten better on some of that stuff (laughs) that he can be a little more forward about it. And I think it's great. Um, And it's something I always realized just as a, like an affectionate thing that's there. And I can't even imagine the scene without Sam grabbing Frodo's hand. No, not at all. And Frodo uh, here has been healed presumably by, I don't know if I want to call it magic, but I'll just say Alvin skill, um, given the nature of his Morgul wound um, and that Aragon wasn't able to do a home remedy on him with some weed and, you know, lemon and ginger or whatever it is. So so the big part about the scene in, uh, with Frodo in bed is him asking Gandalf where he's been. And that's where we get the flashback to his escape from Orthanc. And this uh, picture is Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen battling atop uh, the tower. Not really battling. I'm pretty sure Saruman's just torturing Gandalf at this (laughs) point and toying with him a little bit and making him kind of submit to his will and Sauron's will maybe vicariously. Um, But that's when the moth comes uh, that came uh, in the earlier scene we discussed at Isengard, and it heralds the arrival of Gwaher, um, Lord of the Eagles, I believe. I'm not sure if he's king. And then... uh, Gandalf does a halo jump basically off <laughs> the top of Orthanc and is able to land on Gwahir and ride off into safety. Yeah, and so Gwahir is like a really interesting kind of um, add-in to this um, because he really isn't given much additional context in the films, which is totally fine. Like, he doesn't really need it. Sometimes things can just be magical for the sake of being magical. Um, but um, as far as uh, his context in the book goes, which I think we'll get into a little bit later, um, he is, as you say, uh, the Lord of the Great Eagles during the Third Age. Um, he's descended from a much more powerful, much greater eagle. And again, we'll get into that uh, later. Um, But he um, initially isn't actually looking for um, Gandalf uh, because a moth 
called to him as is shown in the movies and in the books he's there because Radagast the Brown has uh, told him to go speak to Saruman and uh, Gandalf and it's only by chance um, that as he's flying going to look for either Saruman or Gandalf who he hasn't realized has turned yet that he sees uh, Gandalf atop or think and is like hmm that seems like a problem I don't think that's meant to look like that um, and sort of incidentally res- uh, rescues Gandalf but for the most part uh, Gwaihir and the eagles generally are uh, kind of isolationist in a way um, don't typically get involved unless they absolutely must um, and so having him show up here um, I think is a really good and interesting way of kind of strengthening by like uh conflating and i don't mean that in like a value like a negative value judgment way like i mean that like positively kind of combining radagast character and gandalf's character into one and giving gandalf that greater connection to like nature um you're able to kind of as viewers understand that there is this very direct conflict between like the industrialization that is represented by saruman and the sort of like romantic nature element that is represented by gandalf and lo and behold there is no kind of uh, cage that can properly trammel the like full force of nature um, as represented by Gwaihir and his relationship to Gandalf and try as Saruman might, uh, you know, the, these metal bars can't really do all of that much. Yeah, and it's probably good to just show the eagles here, especially because they do factor in at the Battle of the Black Gate in Return of the King, um, albeit briefly. But if they came out of nowhere there, and they <laughs> kind of do come out of nowhere a little bit, um, I think it would be just like, wait, what's happening now? I think it'd be really late to introduce a completely new plot element. So giving that a little more of a like explicit touch here is just seeding what happens later in the film, or films, rather. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Stepping out from Frodo's sickbed, we walk into Rivendell, which is also known as Imladris in Sindarin, meaning Deep Valley of the Cleft. The location of Rivendell uh, is roughly based on the landscape of Lauderbrunn in Switzerland. I believe uh, that's from Tolkien, not from Peter Jackson. And it's also referred to as the last homely house east of the sea, uh, which refers to Valinor, which is west of the sea in Amman or Amon. And it is hidden in the foothills of misty in the of the misty mountains in the gorge of the Bruinen, and it was established in the Second Age, uh, the year sixteen ninety seven, by Elrond Half Elven. Uh, was initially a retreat location in the war against Sauron at the time, and then Sauron laid siege to Rivendell, but the Numenorians arrived to uh, help uh, lift the siege, and uh, the you know Rivendell was kind of established thereafter. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about Rivendell is it's one of the few locations in the Lord of the Rings that shows up repeatedly uh, throughout both Lord of the Rings and uh, and The Hobbit. And obviously for us as movie viewers, we get the Lord of the Rings first and The Hobbit second. But for uh, people who were raised with the books or the you know the pre-movie universe, uh, you would have gotten The Hobbit first, um, where it is the last only house uh, first and foremost. And then you would have gotten Lord of the Rings where it is kind of more of this like... Um, this uh, siege warfare zone. Um, and so it is interesting, I think, to see how um, in the films, um, and obviously there is no Hobbit context to these films yet, it's just Lord of the Rings, how they're still trying to sort of encompass both that kind of gentler, softer element of the Hobbits, where it is, you know, the last holy house, the last nice and gentle house, with that sort of war outpost um, uh, potential that it has in, in Lord of the Rings. And I think, you know, combining that sort of soft, um, autumnal vibe that you get with kind of all of the elvish dwellings throughout uh, this film series with, you know, Elrond being all, you know, dark and serious is is a really brilliant way of marrying those two things together. 
Yeah, at least for the Lord of the Rings films, uh, Rivendell is one of the few locations that appears in all three. Um, in the subsequent films, it's mostly just either Arwen or Alrond scenes, and usually them those two playing off each other. But not a lot of locations really show up in all three films. Um, like, uh, you know, Rohan and Gondor are really introduced in um, The Two Towers, even though we kind of saw Minas Tirith in, earlier in this film. Um, we don't really go back to the Shire until Return of the King. Uh, so it is like one of the few locations that does crop up in more films than not, which I had never really realized until you put that in the notes here. And then uh, another thing, uh, one thing I really like that Emily said in the recap is that it's kind of a perpetual autumn here at Rivendell and Rivendell itself has a similar sheen to the elves as we've described them going all the way back to Galadriel's prologue. And one thing I like about this before I let Emily speak about it is kind of how we talked about how the transformation of Isengard kind of substituted in or was a way to depict uh, Saruman's fall from grace or whatever you want to call it. Rivendell also acts as a way to tell the story of the elves in the sense that they are in perpetual autumn, that their power is kind of dying out from this world. And it's, you know, winter is coming to use a popular <laughs> expression. Um, so I think that's just a really great visual touch. And I think there's a little more to it that I'm going to let Emily speak to. Yeah, so so time is a really interesting thing in um, in Tolkien's Legendarium, and he, and he spends a lot of time, um, huh, a lot of time trying to figure out how to to kind of assimilate uh, this issue of time with these immortal beings he's created, the elves who surely certainly wouldn't experience time in the same way uh, the uh, mortal men would. Um, and one of the ways that he kind of begins to to deal with this is rather than relying on, you know, simple things like hours or months or years, he refers to the seasons um, because they are, uh, well, you know, at least in certain climates, they are very visceral um, way to understand the changing of time. And like, you know, I, I'm sure anybody who's ever sat through like an English lit or an English lang 101 level course will be like rolling their eyes at this. But, um, you know, uh, quite often when uh, Tolkien is trying to talk about uh, the, the the standards or the living situations of various peoples in Middle Earth, um, he will talk about them in terms of their <laughs> relationship to the autumn and the spring. Um, and in the Two Towers book, um, when um, we as the readers are getting our first sort of overview of the the various kingdoms of men um, and their their sort of non-relationship to the elves, um, the uh, men of Numenor um, and the kingdom of Gondor are described by Faramir as a springless autumn. Um, and, and he's basically saying, you know, they are people who are fading fast and fading quite grimly, and there is really no hope or no future for them as represented by, you know, the spring. Um, and, uh, there are also, uh, lots of references in like the Silmarillion to this, this notion of a springless autumn. Um, and in the, uh, uh intro at the start, I talked about, uh, the hobbits as like, a, a an autumnless spring as sort of this like fount of, of youth and, uh, joy and happiness. Um, and I think that is, uh, something that, that, that kind of theme Theme, that kind of motif is uh, shown really clearly in the the like uh, stylistic choices made uh, throughout this scene in Rivendell and throughout how Rivendell is shown really all the way through the season. And like if you look at the falling of the leaves, that is like one of the really really good indicators that they use. Um, and a lot of this, I should say, is um, is really brought in most heavily by like the concept artwork of um, Ted Naismith, who is a long time. 
legendarian painter. I mean, that is basically his his entire career. And and he does these really, really beautiful paintings and they are really worth um, looking at. Um, but he was also called in by Peter Jackson and co to uh, help do the concept art for uh, the these films. Um, and there's a really cute story where... Um, uh, he was, I think, I think he was actually in Switzerland, um, and Peter Jackson screwed up the, uh, time differences when he was trying to call him to get him on board. Um, and so, uh, like Peter Jackson was kind of nervous about making this call because he'd realized he was calling him at like four in the morning and was like, Oh God, this guy is like quite a serious Tolkien fan. He's not going to want to be involved. And so he like spun out his spiel for 30 minutes, basically begging Ted Naismith to get on board with the films. Um, and years and years later, uh, Naismith was like, yeah, I was on board from the minute he called and said, my name is Peter Jackson. I'm making a Lord of the Rings series. Um, Uh but anyways, sorry massive digression aside I, I always thought that was cute but yeah uh, Ted Naismith's art is really really good at showing this kind of se- se- seasonality I guess would be the term um of the the legendarium and, and how that relates to the sort of status of the various peoples um and Rivendell in the films is just an absolutely beautiful attempt to bring that to the, the big screen yeah absolutely I think um, I'm just hypothesizing here. I'm guessing a lot of George Martin's play with the seasons and the long winter in A Song of Ice and Fire might uh, borrow heavily from this. And I'm also will be possibly interested in bringing this discussion back up when we get to the White Tree of Gondor, um, mm-hmm. which you can you know also tie some of these seasonal um, themes to. And uh, I just like, you know, the fact that you talked about Ted Naismith there just because uh, when I was first described the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring film, when my friend Hossein like sold me, hey, you got to you got to and see this movie. Um, he basically described uh, the film as a series of oil paintings or something that's just, you know, you would see it hanging in a museum, uh, you know, to echo back to that uh, <laughs> clip that uh, Emily dropped in the recap. And I think the first scenes I think of when I think about Lord of the Rings as a painting or an oil painting or whatnot, um, Rivendell is literally the first thing that comes to mind. Just the colors, the browns, the oranges. Um, and, you know, those colors can often, you know, they're associated with autumn, so decay, but they're also vibrant and have a sheen in a way that those colors, you know, don't look like mush. It's still vibrant in its own dying way. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I always think of is, um, aside from Ted Naismith, there's a, a watercolor painter, uh, J.M.W. Turner, um, who uh, does lots of um, landscape uh, paintings. Uh, and uh, when I when I used to live, live in Edinburgh, um, the National Gallery of Scotland would put on an exhibition every January, I believe it was, with some of his um, watercolors that usually didn't see the light of day. Um, and one of the, the really uh, remarkable things about his watercolors. Um, and if you have 30 seconds to go Google it, I really suggest just having a look through some of the gallery, uh, galleries online of his, um, paintings is that he manages to get that sort of soft, hazy, uh, feeling of, of autumn captured really brilliantly alongside the kind of harshness and, and like jagged landscape. Cause you know, he's painting typically like the North of England or Scotland, which has these quite mellow, melodramatic, I guess. Um, and, uh, gothic almost landscapes. Um, but he overlays it with this sort of autumnal or occasionally spring, like, um, feeling the, 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 this kind of aura to, to the art, to, 
you know, through the use of watercolors. Um, and Rivendell to me is really basically a, a Turner watercolor come to life. Um, and um, for, for that reason, I always get quite excited when we see that first beautiful shot of uh, Rivendell uh, in, in, in the distance nestled in the mountains, because it really does just look like, um, at, you know, matte painting is obviously like a cin cinematic set design technique, um, but it's not really matte painting to me it's almost like glitter watercolor painting for how beautifully it comes to life yeah absolutely and uh maybe uh we'll try to throw some of these uh artists and paintings that we're talking about uh on our instagram feed or our twitter feed uh when we kind of go live with this uh episode so um you guys can see it we want to uh, make people more familiar with the art that surrounds the Legendarium and the Lord of the Rings, because there's so much tremendous stuff even outside of the films and the film production that deserve attention. And every time I see Lord of the Rings art, I am usually captivated by it. <laughs> um, but let's move on to Elrond Half-Elven, who is played, of course, by Hugo Weaving, who was among the other actors at this time, having a huge moment being uh, in the Matrix trilogy playing as Agent Smith. Um you know, it just two very iconic roles uh, at the time. So good for him for getting that bag. Um, Elrond is Cinderin for Stardome or Elf of the Cave. And uh, when I give Emily some time here in a bit, maybe she can elaborate on that. Um, we did mention that he's half Elvin. Um, and then he is the father of Aladdin and Elro here, who are not seen in the films, but do have a presence in the text itself and Arwen Undomiel is his daughter who obviously gets a lot of attention or a fair amount of attention rather in these films. Yeah um, I think one of the things that people tend to get quite uh, grouchy about um, and, and I think at, at first I kind of was kind of grouchy about um, it but you know I, I think as I've kind of simmered down with the did you know I've read the books affect to once you've read the books and going back to the films anyways uh, uh Aladdin and Elro here get cut out and um, most of Aaron's family gets cut out uh of the series uh, besides Arwen uh, who plays quite a crucial role um and I actually think it's totally fine <laughs> in the end like in the end I'm like yeah okay that's okay um but Aladdin and Elro here are kind of fun because they uh by virtue of having been in Rivendell for the bulk of um Aragorn's uh youth actual youth because uh, he gets to have one of those um end up kind of functioning as these like knowing older brothers to Aragorn um, and they do have some kind of fun cutesy interactions in uh the uh, passing of the Grey Company and uh, that's the chapter in Return of the King where they go down the paths of the dead um and just not something I think they could have reasonably done in the films but uh they are some fun little uh characters that if you have um uh some spare time uh, at any point in the next uh five to ten years before the world explodes uh read the book and watch out for them as characters because it is just like a uh they are just fun <laughs> <laughs> fun little guys running around having having the time of their life during the apocalypse <laughs> and we uh we know that elrond is a skilled warrior on top of being a leader of uh the elves uh we saw him briefly in the prologue he was essentially a general in the um elven army we see an arrow zooming past his hair which the first couple times i saw this movie is like what are the elves doing? That's like really co close to that dude's head. Um, but then as we'll kind of learn with Legolas and, you know, more about the elves, they're like pretty much perfect precision shooters, more <laughs> or less. So I, I kind of get that touch. It kind of works in retrospect. 
Um, and we'll also find out he has the gift of foresight, which will come up in both The Two Towers and Return of the King and The Two Towers. Um, there, there's basically an intermission halfway through the movie where Elrond and Galadriel kind of talk telepathically. And, uh, you know, they kind of talk about the fate of Frodo, that he's foreseen it. And then in Return of the King, Arwen and Elrond will have conversations about Elrond possibly seeing a future in which Arwen and Aragorn get married, have a kid, um, and Aragorn defeats Mordor, or is at least, you know, Sauron is defeated, whether Aragorn does it directly or not. And then lastly, he is an expert healer, um, which is why he was rushed, or Frodo was rushed to Rivendell after suffering that wound at Weathertop. So, so uh, I think the the healing stuff, um, and and if you are like a, a fan of the books who is currently listening to this and is like uh, this heal this uh, healer stuff is really significant. Why are you not spending more time on it? Um, here is my plug. Uh, wait about. 40 minutes i'm very adhd and have no conception of time and we will get very very far into uh the significance of Elrond's uh, healing capabilities um but it is worth also noting that like um the films don't do that but the films do make a connection um quite subtly between um aragorn and uh Elrond, um and it is something that i think they don't really play up but but they they have included quite pointedly which is um uh, Aragorn or Frodo gets stabbed by Morgul blade um, and desperately needs uh, healing help. And Aragorn says, "This is beyond my capabilities. We have to take him to Elrond." Um, three movies later, uh, two and a half movies later, uh, there are two characters who are uh, uh, basically obliterated by Morgul blades, um, and and this is two characters, well, three actually, because Mary as well, um, who are basically obliterated by Morgul blades or by the Black Breath, uh, which is the the depression machine that the uh, witch king of angmar um pumps out um, and aragorn who is at that point kind of con- conceded but like come into himself as a king um doesn't bat an eye as he heals them um and so that is that lovely bit of like character growth and in a way um even though uh, elrond is not necessarily like the ideal father figure for aragorn in these films um he has passed on this kind of knowledge and this capability and this like um means of legitimizing himself via healing to aragorn and i think it is just like this really really beautiful and lovely moment yeah and uh you bring up aragorn there i think there's a little bit of antagonism that's punched up between Elrond and Aragorn in um, these films. And I don't think it's like a severe antagonism or like a real dislike, but I think Elrond has played a little more skeptical about Aragorn's chances of reuniting the kingdoms of men um, or, you know, whether he will fail in the same way that Isildur failed before him. Um, It's not like, again, not like they're outwardly mean to each other or anything like that, but you kind of do see him as kind of, um, maybe a little hesitant to buy into Aragorn's, uh, I don't know if it, I would call it prophesied, uh, you know, what his fate, but um, it's kind of played a little up that they're kind of at odds about this little bit, which is kind of paid off in Return of the King when um, Elrond is convinced to reforge the sword, which we'll talk about it here in a minute. Um, and then he kind of throws his lot in behind Aragorn, and that's supposed to kind of be a monumental moment, like about a third of the way through Return of the King. Uh, Elrond is also uh, amongst the cast that's used heavily for exposition and narration over the trilogy. We've talked about Christopher Lee, Ian McKellen, and Kate Blanchett filling those roles as well. And that includes getting some exposition here, which leads us into more context for Isildur and what happened when Sauron fell. Um, We see that when he obtained the ring, when he cut it from Sauron's hand, um, the ring actually shrunk down in the palm of his hand so it would, you know, fit on someone of Isildur's size. And then 
uh, Alrond came up to Isildur right there on the at the foot of Mount Doom and told him, hey, let's go into the crack of doom and let's throw it into the fire, which uh, we see them like in the, I don't know what you want to call it, the bridge or the walkway that's within the volcano that we see at the end of Return of the King. And we get a very iconic moment where Alrond is cast it into the fire, destroy it, and then Isildur just says, no, and turns around and walks out. In fact, it's a very memed moment. Um, anytime I just want to, you know, say the word no in response to something on Twitter, I often just grab that Isildur uh, screen cap because, um, you know, a picture says a picture says it better. And in our very first episode, I threw in the notes the name Harry Sinclair and had completely spaced on wh- who or what that was. I did my research and I have a mea culpa. Harry Sinclair is the name of the actor who plays a sealed door. And I just wanted to include that in. I don't really think he's popped up in anything anywhere near as iconic. I don't really know any of his other work, but I just wanted to not leave that thread dangling from our very first episode. What delightfully normal name for such like for an actor playing such a ridiculous like you know like Viggo Mortensen has like a wild name like it is a brilliant name and he's playing Aragorn you'd expect that like the like maybe well maybe you wouldn't expect maybe other people are like normal and handle these things well but finding out the actor who plays Isildur is named Harry Singler is like like so like all right Bob's my uncle okay. And now we can talk a little bit about Narsil, uh, a blade with a name. It's the long sword that we see was broken under Sauron's uh, boot, essentially, at the Battle of Mount Doom from that prologue. It's uh, the broken blade that Isildur used to cut the ring from Sauron's hand. In Quenya, it means red and white flame or possibly sun and moon. And it was wielded by Elendil, uh, who was the uh, father of uh, Isildur, and then Isildur picked it up uh, it, during the battle after his father was kind of vanquished, and the sword broke. Um, I don't know exactly if the sword broke in the same way that is depicted in the films, uh, where, you know, Isildur's trying to pick it up, and then Sauron kind of steps on it, and it kind of shatters under his weight. But uh, it would be known as the sword that was broken, or Borken, as I accidentally typed in the outline here. Um, The sword was forged in the First Age by the dwarfsmith Telkar of Nogrod. Um, Sorry if I'm killing that pronunciation. And uh, the sword also has a knife buddy, a corresponding smaller blade to go with it called Angrist. Um, The sword in the films stands in a little bit for Eric. Gorin's own reluctance and doubts. He is both in awe of the sword, but fears what he may become if he chooses to wield it. And the fact that it's shattered um, and when it gets mended in the films is all a part of kind of Aragorn's arc and accepting his role as the king of men uh, in these films, which is a bit of a departure from the books because he basically carries the sword around with him at all times um, or as long as we see him with it. Yeah, and I think it is also kind of this element of like, um, I, I, you know, as we talked about um, in lots and lots of previous episodes about the the these films and their kind of theory of rulership and governance, um, which is that like uh, to legitimize the king, um, there needs to be some kind of like underlying humility or some kind of like underlying reluctance, um, and um, and they needed to make him more of a character because it needed to kind of uh, have this kind of introspection over like what being a king means. Um, and the sword, the sword does that because the sword is both like at once, uh, uh, you know, a tool, a tool of violence, um, you know, peace seeking violence is ironic and like very like Bush era as that sounds. Um, but it's also a, a sign of like um, a connection to ancient tree and, and to the things that at one point, um, 
you know, brought <laughs> brought the world together, like it's a small world. Um, but like, you know, the dwarf smiths of Aragian, who we'll talk about in the token token book section, um, in a slightly greater detail, are like intimately connected in some ways to the elves and the elvish smiths uh, under like Calabrimber. Um, but they are also they have this relationship to um Gondor and uh, Arnor, the Northern Kingdom, um, and there is this this feeling of like through these this craft um and and this um sort of creation of things um that is you know not an inherently violent act um there is connection um and i think like as um aragorn kind of tries to cope with what being a king means even though they never give that that dwarven dwarrow context to the sword that is kind of an underlying element which is like how do you be a king um without just ruling by the blade or um how do you imbue a blade with greater meaning than just killing people and things yeah um i this is kind of a tangent but i think about how um to be a king you kind of need to show the trappings of power and having the sword of a king is one of those trappings of power um i think i'm running out of my game of thrones quota for this episode (laughs) um but there is a line in the books um where someone is speaking to daenerys targaryen and they say um if you want to be king of the rabbits you have to wear your floppy ears um and this also ties into (laughs) things like arwen um you know unfurling the banner for aragon like at a certain point, you know, just being the heir of a sealed door is not enough, but you actually need to kind of show the trappings of power. And they use the sword, kind of like how we talked about Rivendell and Isengard, as ways to kind of reflect what that means for certain characters. Um, the sword itself stands in for kind of Aragorn's arc through these movies. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is also like an inheritance for Tolkien, who is um, very, very interested in like uh, Old English and Anglo-Saxon myths, because, um, you know, obviously name swords are something that show, show up throughout medieval lit. But he is he is very obviously pulling here from from Beowulf and um, the idea of like and, and again, like, like the, the sort of. Um, uh hereditary sort of gain of of weapons is again something that is uh uh everywhere it's pervasive in medieval lit so i'm not saying that this is like something that is unique to beowulf but the the overture or the overtones of uh this specific inheritance um are far closer to beowulf uh than uh well you know in my incredibly limited experience of medieval lit uh than to anything else uh, mad so uh if you have um, time in in your life uh, to read a book to watch a movie uh Seamus Heaney's uh translation of Beowulf is um particularly interesting and particularly accessible um and also a lot of the imagery that he uses um in his translation for talking about the various sorts of weaponry I think is is reflected quite well in Lord of the Rings and at least for me has kind of been an eye-opener in how I look at these these scenes yeah and uh Presumably, the films never really clarify here. I feel like the story we're kind of uh, supposed to piece together about the shards of Narsil is that they were brought to Rivendell after the death of Isildur, which happened in the Gladden Fields. Um, and they don't really, really talk about it any further. But I think given how little they play with any of the lineage between Isildur and Aragorn, we can kind of presume that. And we do see uh, Narsil, the shards of Narsil, in the Hobbit films when Bilbo visits Rivendell on his way to the Lonely Mountain. And one little uh, flourish I like in this scene is that um, Boromir uh, sees an actual 
painting or a mural that shows Isildur cutting the ring from Sauron, which is a scene that we've actually seen a couple of times now in the film. But uh, seeing that elven mural really gives a sense of uh, a lived-in history to this world, that they're depicting the things that matter to them, um, that have, you know, shaped the world as it is being. And as we, you know, reiterate the point that this is a story about stories, it's relate to us as a history, um, all that stuff kind of plays in with having a mural that depicts this kind of seminal moment. And, you know, this isn't the end of our discussion on uh, the sword because we will get into Andoril, Flame of the West, when it uh, emerges back in Return of the King. One last note is we're kind of eliding Boromir in totality here. That is because we are going to start doing character episodes, uh, which will probably start dropping the week after you listen to this. Um, So we are going to give a little more space for um, kind of the more important members of the fellowship going forward. And Boromir is really one that makes sense to knock out right away because he spends the least amount of time with the fellowship, which, you know, makes me very sad. Boromir makes sense as the one to knock out right away is also what Tolkien said writing this, so (laughs) tragic. (laughs) Oh, and on that note, let's, (laughs) let's transition over to our cinematography and score section. And as we've kind of highlighted and joked about many times, uh, the scene of Frodo coming to, uh, in Rivendell, where we can kind of see uh, point of view shots of him that are theoretically being carried in, kind of like if he was on a gurney or stretcher or something like that. And he's looking up at the architecture of Rivendell, these like arches and gazebos. Um, I don't know if there's a better word than gazebo for that, Uh, but uh, it's very much all kind of blanketed in white um, and, you know, just has this very... I, would, I don't know, like heavenly quality to it, almost like he's like being brought uh, to the pearly gates or something like that. And we get these kind of perspective shots of Hugo weaving as he's speaking in Elvish and uh, theoretically, you know, casting a spell or doing whatever Elvin healing techniques that he's aware of. Yeah, people get so touchy about this, and I will defend this shot uh, like like to the death because I, I think it's brilliant, and and maybe it's also a sign of like how uncritical of a movie watcher I am because I really did not clock that it's meant to be like him being walked into Rivendell. I really just thought he was like tripping balls and seeing Elrond in his dreams, um, and not that he was like partially conscious for it. Um, but I think again, like these the shots get for me to the point of the thing that I've, I've, you know, been harping on about on this podcast, which is like, uh, the, the, the overall aesthetic, the overarching, overarching aesthetic of these films is a, is a storybook. Um, and, um, you know, you don't really need to have an absolutely, uh, realistic take on what it looks like when you are dying, um, and seeing people talking above you because you're doing it like it's a storybook, uh, you're doing it like it's unreal and you can take a little creative license. And, um, I know people say it hasn't aged well, but I, don't think that's true at all. I think it's aged very well. Um, it is hokey and camp um, and looks great for it. Um, and uh, haters stay mad. <laughs> yeah. It also, um, I know I mentioned the pearly gates and I'm not trying to make a biblical reference here, but it feels like, I don't know, like turning the page in a book, like you got a blank white page, kind of where book one ends with the flight of the Ford and you kind of have a blank space before you move on to the chapters in Rivendell. Um, It definitely feels like you're entering a new territory, some realm you haven't been in. And I kind of like that kind of bookend or at least one half of a bookend to that um, being these kind of vibe shots that we both, you know, pretty much are a fan of, even though other people, lesser people, I would say, complain about them. Yeah, long live the 80s. We'll uh, talk a little bit more about the Isengard flashback. I know we talked about it uh, substantively in terms of its narrative impact, but this is kind of 
one of the few spots where we do get the feeling that the Lord of the Rings films are a story about stories because it is Gandalf relaying it to Frodo right on the spot and we cut to the flashback. And we see some cool shots here. Uh, the one where uh, Saruman has Gandalf kind of hanging over the edge. Um, you can kind of see past Ian McKellen and look all the way down to the Caverns of Isengard, which once again plays with that sense of verticality. And then we have some fun shots with the moth flying across uh Gandalf's face when he's in this position and then we kind of turn to his point of view the camera is basically him looking up at Saruman and then we see the moon behind Saruman and then a great black shape uh, kind of flashes across it which is Gwahar the Eagle which leads to uh, Gandalf's jump off the top of the tower um, and then he flies to safety um, and one thing I want to mention about the books here, uh, just to save space for Elrond and all the elf stuff in the Tolkien Tolkien section, is that it kind of implies in the film that he jumps on Gwahar and makes his way to Rivendell, basically from there. But from the what we know in the books, this probably happened a lot earlier than as depicted. And we see Gandalf trying to pick up um, the footsteps of Aragorn and the hobbits in Bree and Eriador as they're making their way to Rivendell. He supposedly fought the, or not supposedly, he did fight the Nazgul atop Weathertop in his own way. Um, he left runes there for uh, Aragorn and Frodo to find when they arrived there later. Yeah, he actually goes to Rohan first, um, and we will, um, well, I, I will make some uh, uh, character assassinations of Gandalf uh, when we get to uh, Rohan, or at least to Shadowfax, because uh, I think the that bit in the books is incredibly revealing about what a straight-up dick he is, um, but having uh, skipped over that in the films is a very, very good thing, um, I say, because it makes Gandalf quite a bit more likable, and also, I think, like just adds to the overall urgency of the film, instead of uh, Gandalf wandering around in the woods uh, like... Uh, a crying pilgrim uh, he is on it and ready to go and ready to go for war which i think <laughs> at least helps the pacing a bit of the story mm -hmm. and uh one political note i want to make here uh these films were uh pretty much created before 9-11 and the war on terror but looking back on these films now and especially associating with the war on terror with the 9-11 attacks it's hard for me not to conceive of uh, Count Dooku torturing Magneto atop of Orthanc and think about torture, uh, torturing prisoners of war and enemy combatants that the US and UK would do uh, in the wake of uh, the war on terror so um, just something I think about uh, I know Tolkien's telling his own stories about the wars that affected his life but these are the wars that affect our lives and I can see some of that coming through even even unintentionally, of course, like I said, this was all created before the War on Terror, but it's hard for me to dissociate the two at this point. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how Rivendell is depicted outside of the whole, um, you know, oil painting, uh, you know, motif that we've described earlier. I think a big thing about it is lighting and how well lit everything in Rivendell is, even in this perpetual autumn. There are very few shadows to be seen in these scenes, almost as like they're like have light sources, whether natural for the scenes or, you know, part of film magic that are basically hitting the characters and the sets from all sides. So, you know, it just feels like there are no shadows here, which could be, again, symbolism for the fact that Rivendell has yet to be touched by the shadow, which Elrond alludes to earlier. And there's also, because the elves are eternal in their own way, it feels like there's a lot more slow motion uh, depicted in the scenes in Rivendell in terms of the way the characters walk, the way they're riding in, the way Merry and Pippin celebrate with Frodo and Sam when they see that he's all well together. And it might just, again, be a symbol for how time moves more slowly for the elves and that maybe time moves more slowly here in Rivendell itself. Uh, 
feature that I think they'll kind of repeat a little bit when we get to Lothlorien and Galadriel in a later scene. Yeah, and I think the lighting is really crucial here. Uh, and I want to highlight two instances of uh, really interesting lighting um, um, and, and their sort of connection. And I think one that you've hit on, which is absolutely correct, which is the way that they light Rivendell. Um, but the the second one for me is um, when the Fellowship all have their entrances. Um, Legolas is, um, and I joked in the intro, he's lit like Rita Hayworth and Gilda, but but he absolutely is. Um, and and uh to slow myself down briefly and do a brief explanation of how um theatrical and early film lighting works um you have typically on any actor you would have uh three 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 individual lights um so three uh, light sources um one is your um backlight and that is to the back at usually like a 45-ish degree angle um on your back left side of your your character and then you're going to have um a front light which is uh in front at an angle to uh your character and it's going to light the bulk of uh your actor's face um and it's going to to highlight the things that you want to highlight so you can put it at you know below uh, an actor to uh lengthen or or to sorry to take away uh certain shadows left by facial features or you can put it above an actor to lengthen uh, uh shadows left by facial features like noses or cheekbones or whatever um and then you have uh your third and final light is your fill light which kind of fills in a bit of the darkness uh and the shadows left by uh your 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 key light um in uh the golden age of hollywood um uh women in particular were lit uh to make their not not to make them look featureless like not not like some like doctor who creation but they were lit in such a way that they're they were uh, effectively airbrushing um their features with lighting um, and so you'll see in a lot of old hollywood films particularly black and white ones where they got to be a little ballsier and a little more creative with lighting um you'll see, uh, you know, women's faces will look like they're glowing and the backlight will always hit them like they've got a halo, even in outdoor scenes. Um, and they'll always have like a glint in their eye. Um, and if you want to see this not put into action in a serious way, but in a kind of uh, a parody way, um, the the film, uh, oh my God, I'm going to say Sound of Music and that's not what it is. Um, oh my God, uh, uh, Gene Kelly. Um and singing in um, the rain singing in the rain thank you oh my god um singing in the rain um, and debbie reynolds um and she's always got the glitter in her eye uh which uh, the little shine in her eye which is uh, caused by uh, an additional light literally shine directly into her eye um and that is that kind of look that old hollywood lighting was going for um and who should be lit by like that throughout these films but legolas um and he is really lit the whole way through like an old hollywood starlet um and so you get his skin and you know obviously orlando bloom is like insane young i think he's like 19 years old in these films um but you know he, his skin looks like it is glowing it looks like it's blurred out and he's always got the glimmer in his eye and a bit of a halo behind him and it is just because they're they are lighting him like he is rita hayworth um and i and i think that is just a really lovely way to convey so so much about um you know the elves um generally but but specifically him um through such a simple technical touch yeah, my mind was literally blown when Emily put this in the notes. I had not pieced together that they were using kind of that classical lighting with uh, the elves and Legolas specifically. Um, but it absolutely makes sense, both in terms of what I actually see on, see 
on the screen, but also basically where Peter Jackson's major film influences are coming from, especially with these films. Um, he definitely loves that old Hollywood style. And I'm actually now going to uh, track how Legolas is lit uh, going <laughs> forward, even when they're outside of Rivendell, because it would be a cool thing if they are still lighting him with all that backlight and fill light that you described so well. Um, it's kind of showing that he kind of behaves differently than the other species or races of people of Middle Earth, even if they're not uh, being shot in Rivendell. And just one editorial note, um, I think Singing in the Rain might possibly be the greatest movie ever. Um, yeah. It is definitely on that short list where I just think it's an absolutely incredible film. And that's not like some hot take. Um, I know the AFI Top 100 has its own problems, but it's number three, uh, the number three ranked film on that. So Singing in the Rain, it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, I believe it's on HBO Max. Um, I highly recommend it. You will be delighted with a smile from beginning to end. And then moving on, when Gandalf and Elrond are talking about what to do about this ring problem and, you know, whether they can trust in dwarves or the elves can't do it anymore, they don't have the strength to do it. Um, Gandalf does mention there is one who can reclaim the throne and we get a smash cut right onto Viggo Mortensen's beautiful face. And this is kind of where we start obliquely talking about Aragorn's lineage. Um, we have that one smash cut. And in the scene with Arwen, uh, we do, uh, she does mention you are a Sealdor's heir, not a Sealdor himself, which I, you know, I picked up, I realized they were saying something there, but it really isn't until the following scene in um, the Council of Alrond and Legolas basically say that's dude, the that that dude is the future king or is the king or should be king, however you want to phrase it. Um, I, I was, you know, still kind of turning the wheels in my head the first time through, but this is kind of where they're kind of setting that up for them to spike the ball over at the Council of Alrond. Uh, one of the shots I really like in the scene between Aragon and Boromir is um, where uh, Boromir picks up the shards of Narsil, or rather the part that's the hilt and, you know, what part of the broken blade is still attached to it. And he touches the blade with his finger very lightly, but it instantly cuts him, uh, which, you know, again, is a focus on hands and fingers in this movie. And, you know, Boromir supposedly wanting to take the ring later on in this movie might be a reason they wanted to have that shot of his hand. Um, the red really stands out in Rivendell um, between the blue and black lighting of this nighttime scene, between the general sheen that uh, uh, Rivendell has, and also maybe because blood is not supposed to be shed here. This is not a place for war, um, even though it was a refuge from war in its founding. I think it's really kind of neat uh, that they uh, really punched up the red of the blood here. And again, it could also just be foreshadowing of uh, Boromir's death in the end as he as he will fall, as we've <laughs> described and joked about already. Yeah, and I think the sharpness of that blade is really interesting to, to me because um, it, it, for me, kind of symbolizes like the nearness of history. Um, and so, you know, Boromir goes after the Shards of Narsil because he's obviously saying something from uh, like legend, from, you know, from childhood bedtime stories and is not thinking of it as like an active tool of war. He's not like, you don't see him charge at any other swords so recklessly, but but um, Narsil is something to him that is um, ancient and uh, inert in some ways. Um, and so for it to immediately harm him uh, is, is a sign that, you know, he's not thinking as clearly about uh what um what what the what impacts the past can have on the present um as he really ought to um and you know what a clearer way to do that than for the past to literally make him bleed <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it does, sorry for another A Song of Ice and Fire reference, remind me of Valyrian Steel, which is a magical type of uh, swordsman, or sorry, uh, 
steelwork. Uh, what's, there's a word for this. Uh, I can't think of it. But for, for forging swords, that's a bit magical, and those blades never lose their edge. Um, they do not rust like normal steel does. And it's just another thing that makes me think of it. Uh, no real connection to anything with the plot. But again, I have to make at least five Game of Thrones references <laughs> during each episode. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the music here. Uh, when we opened the recap, we kind of gave you the leitmotif for Rivendell, which will be revisited a couple times, uh, mostly in the scenes in Rivendell and again in the Hobbit movies when Bilbo arrives. Um, it has a very minstrel, angelic-sounding feel to it. It's a lot of harps and strings um, with that choral element that really kind of sets it apart from... I know there's a lot of harps and strings in other pieces of it, but it definitely has a different feel than any other piece Um especially in relation to, say, the kingdoms of men or the concerning hobbits or some of the dwarf uh, leitmotifs. Uh, we start seeing that each race kind of has their own distinct feel uh, to it, and I really like um, It's a very calming sound. I, I always know when we reach uh, this point in the soundtrack, because I listen to it all the time, it was my most listened to thing on Spotify's rap <laughs> list, which I don't think I'm the only one on the podcast. Um, but it's like, ah, yes, here, we're at Rivendell. This is a place to like just sit and think and relax for like two minutes. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because um, the the you're right. There are like a lot of string elements and, and harp elements, um, and the harp uh, for the elves is uh, quite like a significant symbolic instrument. Um, and I will uh, briefly mention some of that in the token token book section. Um, but if you look at a lot of the the stories about the elves that are related in the Silmarillion, um, harps play up uh, quite significantly. And so to have that um, that uh, instrumentation in in these scenes um, is a really good way of kind of connecting um the 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 sort of lore of the elves to what's going on in Rivendell even if it is kind of divorced and set apart from it and uh going alongside with that is also there's a piece of music that goes with the Arwen Aragorn scenes where they're kind of talking about their undying love together or you know choosing a mortal life and you know all that garbage that Emily <laughs> recap sorry that's not garbage but um, I don't want to go over that but um, you do get um, another kind of um, choral or vocal based track behind them as they're doing this and I believe this is actually Enya singing um, is singing words in I believe it's Quenya, but I'll, I don't actually have that specifically confirmed in front of me. Uh, Enya very notably will do the end track to this uh, movie, uh, May It Be, which will uh, come at the during the end credits. But um, I do like that they kind of worked her in there as well. And it's very fitting. I think the music for the Arwen Aragorn scenes throughout the trilogy um, seems very appropriate. And I think there's a lot of kind of hidden, I hate the word Easter eggs, but just the way what's going on with the language behind is very, is something that, you know, Tolkien fans can really dig into. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, there is an element of, um, uh, the the spoken word and uh, well not the spoken word the song word um, and song is a really important way for uh, how the elves uh, pass their history down uh, some of the most significant elements of the Silmarillion as the book are are passed down through the uh, Nodolante which is a lament uh, dealing with the Noldor who are the the high elves uh, Gladriel's sort of Gladriel's people um, and and to have that connection through the song is is yet another like really good way of linking the, these kind of like um, olive branches I guess for Tolkien fans uh, book fans uh, uh, through the films Thank you. 
So now we'll wrap up with our token token book analysis. And we'll talk a little bit more about Gweher, the Windlord, the Lord of the Great Eagles during the Third Age. And he is descended from Thorondor, who uh, aided in rescuing Baron and Luthien in a myth that, or myth, sorry, a story that Emily kind of talked about in a couple episodes ago when we were really getting into Aragorn. But do you like Thorondor? <laughs> Uh, yes, he is a king, uh, literally, but also he rocks. Um, and uh, he is um, also significant um, for, uh, well, well, in the summer, he shows up quite a bit, but he helps um, Fingon, um, comes to Fingon's aid when Fingon uh, attempts to save Maedhros from uh, Thangorodrim, um, and who the fuck are Fingon and Maedhros, and what the hell is Thangorodrim? Uh, both of these are good questions, um, and if you subscribe to Manu's Patreon, maybe I will uh, really badly and artlessly try and shove in some more Silmarillion stories uh, into the podcast uh, uh, episodes about the extended edition and scenes that were cut. So more on uh, Thorondor maybe to come. <laughs> um, what we do know about uh, Gwaher is that at some point in the past, Gandalf did save him from a poison arrow. Um, I think I have that right. And then uh, him finding Gandalf at Ornthank, as Emily mentioned earlier, was more happenstance um, as opposed to the more direct uh, causality that's uh, portrayed in the films. Uh, Gwehair was just looking for him, and Emily kind of went over the Radagast of it all. And then uh, <laughs> what we don't see is that uh, Gwehair would also recover Gandalf following his battle with the Balrog at Silverteen. Uh, we see uh, in the films that uh, Gandalf and the Balrog fought to the you know highest peak, as they say, um, and that's where he smote his ruin. Um, and then Gandalf kind of like fell, collapsed there before coming back as Gandalf the White. Um, the part we don't see is that Gwaher is the one who found him there and carried him off to uh, wherever he went to heal before kind of getting back into the game. Uh, we will see uh, Gwaher, uh, not specifically called out, but you know we see the eagles, and Gwaher is presumably one of them at the Battle of the Black Gate in Return of the King, and he's the one that Gandalf rides to Mount Doom to help uh, to pick up Frodo and Sam after they have destroyed the One Ring, and the eagles, of course, appear in the Hobbit films. The end of An Unexpected Journey, the first film, we see the eagles come and save Gandalf, Bilbo, and the dwarves in a similar manner that we see here. Um, Gandalf uses a moth to kind of beckon Gwehair and the other eagles to him. And then in one of the worst movies that I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> uh, Battle of the Five Armies, Radagast also rides um, Gwehair into battle, um, at least according to the notes in the film. It's nothing that's really specifically called out. Gwehair, I don't believe, gets a single name drop at all. Um, that's kind of for us to put together uh, through our knowledge of Tolkien. That is so funny that you mentioned that he shows up in the Battle of the Five Armies because I finally put myself through that movie a couple weeks ago and I definitely remember watching it, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I have absolutely no memory of that happening at all, which I think speaks to <laughs> how effective those movies are. I mean, I, I actively try to kill the brain cells associated with retaining knowledge about that film. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I think we we, we kind of need to get into Elrond stuff. And when you got a dude that's lived as long as he has, there's going to be a lot of stuff here. Um, so I'm going to kind of list out a bunch of facts. And then, you know, Emily will kind of add a little more context to that and kind of really go into the neat, in-depth stuff. Um, 
So uh, Alrond uh, supposedly has the skill of Osanwe. I don't know how to say this word, but it's essentially kind of a form of telepathy. Um, it allows him to communicate with uh, other elves or other great peoples. Um, we kind of see it in the intermission of the two towers. I'm sorry, I keep calling it intermission. It's not an intermission, um, but we see him kind of re- relaying and discussing stuff with Galadriel, who is in Lothlorien, and they're kind of doing it through, you know, mind talk. He probably learned something from Professor X along the way there. Um, Elrond is also the bearer of Vilya, which is one of the three rings given to the elves. If you remember, uh, that's part of the prologue of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it is a ring of sapphire or the blue ring. And Vilya was crafted by Celebrimbor, grandson of Feanor via Curufin. As you can tell, I know I've said these words many times in my life. Um, <laughs> Celebrimbor oversaw the great Alvin Smiths of Eregion. Um, and this is the sort of the upper limit of Celeborn and Galadriel's kingdom in the Second Age. Um, it's literally right outside the western gates of Moria. Uh, the Smiths were legendary, and one day an elf called Anatar showed up and made friends with Celebrimbor. This mysterious and surprisingly clever character, Anatar, helped Celebrimbor make seven rings of power for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone and nine for mortal men doomed to die. But Celebrimbor, who was more than a little bit like his grandfather Feanor, secretly made three, three rings for the Alvin kings under the sky. And all that kind of wink-wink thing about Anatar is that that is, of course, Sauron. Well, maybe not, of course, you might not know that, but Anatar is one of Sauron's presents. Um, or appearances to other people as a fair folk. Um, but Sauron never touched the three rings, the three elven rings, so they remain pure. And uh, the three rings in total are Narya, the ring of fire, which went to Gandalf via Círdan, uh, Nenya, the ring of water, which went to Galadriel, and Vilya, which we are talking about here that Elrond has, but it first went to Gilgalad. And I'm sorry for regurgitating all that boring history. Um, I think Emily will do a much more compelling job with the rest of it. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Elrond, Elrond, uh, well, um, uh, a lot of Elrond's personal history, um, we've already been through on this podcast, um, and so I didn't want to, um, bore you all with talking about Elrond and Elros and Irendil and, uh, Elwing again, uh, so instead I'm going to, to, uh, give you a very, very long-winded bit of context for a single line, uh, that comes several scenes from now, but that, um, I uh, only recently kind of put the pieces together on for um, and uh, didn't didn't cry, but got a little teary, a little sniffly, um, and I want you all to have that same experience of uh, crying over uh, or not crying over fictional characters, because what is insanity if not uh, what is the purpose of insanity if not sharing it with others? So, um, <laughs> uh, Elrond and Elros uh, as uh, youths. Uh, were uh, raised by what is affectionately known by Tolkien fans as the the kidnap family, um, and uh, it's uh, quite a jarring sentence uh, or a jarring term, the kidnap family. So I'm gonna give you a, a, a rapid fire history lesson on the Legendarium here, and then get you into some uh, more of the emotional context. Uh, and so it all begins, as with most of these stories in the Legendarium, with. Um, these things called the Silmarils, um, and they are made by Feanor, um, and Feanor is Gladriel's half-uncle, so if you follow me on Twitter and ever see me dunking on Gladriel for uh, conveniently not mentioning her own power-hungry family members, uh, it's Feanor I'm referring to. Feanor makes these jewels, um, 
uh, called the Silmarils, and Morgoth, who is like the big bad ahead of Sauron, uh, covets the Silmarils and steals them. Uh, Feanor, uh, who is well-adjusted at the best of times, goes absolutely batshit um, and gets his sons, all seven of his sons and their followers, um, together and uh, makes them swear an oath to recover the Sil- Silmarils. Um, and this is called the Oath of Feanor, and it is one of the most significant oaths or uh, you know any sort of series of words in the in Tolkien's Legendarium. Uh, the of the sons, the two important ones for this story are Maedhras, who I mentioned briefly mentioned earlier, and Maglor. Um, and um, there are a whole bunch of other sons. There's like uh, the youngest, who are twins, called Ambarusa. Uh, well, that's their their kind of mother name. They have their own names. Um, and then the middle sons, uh, middle three sons, uh, are enormous fuckhead bastards. Um, I briefly mentioned uh, or uh, implied the existence of one in. The last episode, when I talk about Luthien, um, Caligorm, who is like I think the fourth youngest son, fourth oldest son, uh, is uh, takes Luthien captive and tries to force her to marry him. So he's just a fucking bastard. Uh, anyways, uh, Feanor's sons—they are a wild bunch, um, and they are in their uh, <laughs> inability to emotionally regulate themselves now bound to this uh, immensely dangerous. Uh, task in uh, recovering the Silmarils from Morgoth, uh, and will do essentially uh, whatever they have to to get them back. Uh, which, obviously, because this is a quite a dramatic story, uh, leads to lots of horrible, horrible things. Anyways, uh, Elwing, uh, Elrond and Elros' mom, uh, is chilling in a place called Syrian, uh, which happens to have a Silmaril in it. Uh, when she's in Syrian, she meets uh, a mariner. Uh, he, he's a he's a shipwright uh, uh, named Irendil, uh, and they get married and have two sons, and that is Elrond and Elros. Um, and during the War of Wrath, which is this first major war against Morgoth, uh, which involved uh, the alliance of the elves and dwarves and some of the men, some of the Numenorians, um, they're... The, the forces of the like good guys are kind of sort of sort of mostly led by the Fenorians, um, particularly by um Maedhras, who has a history with Morgoth, uh, not in a weird way, as in uh Morgoth did some horrible things to him, uh, including uh well things that ultimately led to him getting his arm cut off. Uh can you tell that I've just gone back through this Silmarillion recently? <laughs> Anyways, uh Erendil the Mariner builds a ship to go to Valinor to ask these like godlike creatures, the Valar, for help. Uh it's a super difficult and and mostly foolhardy task, uh, but nevertheless, after some additional drama that encompasses a couple pages in the Silmarillion, uh, he accomplishes it. Um, meanwhile, uh, the Feanorians uh, siege uh, Syrian uh, and try to take the Silmaril from Elwing, um, and rather than relinquish it, uh, she throws it into the ocean uh, with herself uh, into the ocean to destroy it, um, and she she is like at some point revived and turned into a swan, and it's like this beautiful thing, but uh, her, her two sons uh, are stuck in Syrian uh, without parents. Um, and uh, they are there found by Maedhras uh, and Maglor, um, who are the last two remaining Fenorians. And while they are uh, markedly more relaxed uh, than the rest of the uh, Fenorian sons, that really doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, they are like the best of a bad bunch. Actually, you know what? Maglor is fine. He's just kind of an emo. Uh, like, like, he's not especially cruel. Uh, like, he's just kind of sad a lot. Um, Maedhras is a bit more of a 
a, a wild character. But anyways, Maedros and Maglor adopt uh, Elrond and Elros um, initially as leverage because they, they sort of expect that um, Eärendil and Elwing are, are maybe out there somewhere and they can leverage the the, the two kids to get the Silmaril. But afterwards, uh, and having sort of started to come to terms with the horrible, horrible, horrible things that they've done to, uh, well, lots and lots of elves, uh, they begin to form some level of affinity for these two young boys who are going through uh, the worst possible uh, way to to live their lives um, and are also faced with the the same choice that Luthien had and that Arwen has, which is the choice of mortality versus immortality. Uh, so as Elrond and Elros are uh, going through their lives, they are raised by these two Fenorians who have gone on basically like kindergarten cop level uh character arcs here with them um and um all the while these these guys are still searching for the Silmarils um and uh, Maedros and Maglor each find them um when Maedros grabs one it burns his hand um and even though he's still got the Silmaril he starts to realize how horrible of a life he has led and how you know the the awful awful things that uh, the Silmarils have made him do um, and, uh, you know, with his burning hand, his other hand is gone, um, with his burning hand, he looks at the Silmaril and realizes that there's really no place for him in the world, um, and that the Silmaril has come to, the Silmarils have come to encompass his entire life, and he throws himself down a volcano, um, and it's somewhat ambiguous as to whether he dies, but I feel like if he, uh, is still going, still falling in that volcano, uh, he may as well be dead. Um, Maglor, meanwhile, who, through the strength of heart of a mid-2000s emo kid, uh, does not throw himself, uh, into a volcano, but instead chooses to wander the sea uh, alone um, and uh, Tolkien makes it out as if you know maybe he is still one day wandering or maybe if he maybe he is still wandering uh, the seaside and maybe you can hear his music because he's a bard he was one of the uh, greatest bards of the elves maybe you can still hear his music on the wind um, of course this is horrible news for Elrond and Elros who have once again been, been abandoned um, and so yet again uh, Elrond and Elros are left in horrible, horrible digs uh, because of an oath um, and the horrible lengths that people will go to to f uphold and fulfill an oath that they've sworn uh, so as not to ruin their name and their word. Um, this is significant for <laughs> a lot of reasons in the book, but for one, um, I would say quite nice reason in the films, which is that as the Fellowship set out from Rivendell in a couple scenes, um, Elrond has a line that says, no, no oath binds you. Um, you go only as far as you wish to go is, is essentially what he's saying there. And that is pretty, pretty clearly a, a well thought out reference um, to this horrible traumatic childhood that Elrond has had. Um, and uh, the, the lingering emotional drama of having been raised in uh, the dark uh, and evil shadow of an oath that drove people who were otherwise good to horrible ends. Um, and I think it's just absolutely delightful because um, not making it an oath um, means that Frodo can break out um, when he needs to break out and can ultimately uh, take on the even harder path that he needs to take on uh, to succeed in his task instead of being faced with uh, the discomfort and the sort of pain and sorrow uh, that the fellowship um, engenders amongst themselves as as best evidenced by Boromir. Um, 
slightly less depressingly, um, this is also significant because um, Elrond's childhood, uh, after having been marred by so much death and destruction and horror, uh, both terror and horror um, in the literary sense, um, he chooses to become a healer. Um, and this is a this is an ongoing theme in Tolkien's work. Um, I think Elrond is a really dramatic and interesting um, example of this, um, and and the the choice to become a healer is uh, a really beautiful one in his case, um, and and no less beautiful, I think, than you know my my favorite character, Eowyn, who goes through um, not an equal amount of trauma, but a significant amount of trauma, um, and comes out um, the other side. And in the book, her line is, um, "I will be a healer um, and love all things that grow and are not barren," um, and I think that is very much uh, the 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 sort of underlying message of a lot of the uh, a lot of Tolkien's works which is this you know ability to see and go through and experience horrible terrible things and to um rather than externalize them in unproductive ways and to to sort of enable um and perpetuate the cycle of violence to turn to things that are um, more caring and more loving and and more gentle um and I think you know Elrond is a is a really really beautiful um example and sort of entry into that um you know pro healing canon in uh Tolkien's work um and I, I think it is just a yeah it's just a, a, a lovely little character element here um and I think uh something that um once you know it I think it adds uh tremendously to a, a lot of what Elrond says and does in the films as well yeah, wow, that that's absolutely incredible. I just finished rereading the Council of Elrond chapter, and the no oath line kind of stuck out to me, but only as it related to the plot, like in terms of what would come with the fellowship. Um, but actually, um, understanding where that all come from is fantastic. Um, I know, um, I don't know how much of what you just went through was actually in the Silmarillion. But I consider myself blessed in the fact that in lieu of reading The Silmarillion, I'm going to have you basically condense it all for this <laughs> podcast. And I honestly think that's probably the best way to consume The Silmarillion. So, and Lord help me, I, I have to make another A Song of Ice and Fire thing here because it's hard to see the way that oaths fuck up people and mess with their trajectories and their lives uh, and not think about Jamie Lannister, who is... I hate to be basic, but he's probably my favorite character in the Western canon. And his whole character is wrapped up in the notion of oath-keeping and oath-breaking. Um, he has this very iconic uh, monologue that happened in A Clash of Kings and was partially depicted in season two of Game of Thrones about so many vows, they make you swear and swear. What happened, you know, they say protect the king, protect the people. Uh, but what happens when that king tells you to murder the people, respect your father, but the king tells you to bring you your father's head. Um, and it's very much showing how, at least in the classic uh, chivalric sense of the code of honor and oaths and oath keeping, how they very much are in conflict with each other. Or in that keeping with the oaths, you can very much let bad things happen or lead yourself or other people to ruin. Um, I don't know if that's deliberately what George Martin was playing with yeah i don't know if he was uh referring to the oath of feanor in there but it's hard not to think about the way that oaths can kind of ruin us and not make that connection for me so i apologize we only have a few minutes left in this podcast so i promise no more game of thrones nonsense <laughs> going forward but 
One thing I do want to talk about, and I think this might be a spot Emily can help fill in, is that the heirs of Isildur were fostered at Rivendell, uh, starting with Valandil, who was uh, Isildur's son. Maybe you can correct me on that. But uh, he, uh, following the massacre at the Gladden Fields, um, he was fostered at Rivendell. And uh, what's it called? I think that maybe wasn't standard practice until the fall of Angmar a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah, um, the Elrond, I think, um, has obviously through Isildur, um, Elrond is related to all of Isildur's heirs because Isildur's ancestor is Alros, his twin brother, and obviously fostering is like quite a common, um, well, was quite quite a common practice and um, for various European and non-European medieval aristocracies. Um, so there is that sort of element, uh, historical element that um, Tolkien is playing on as he, he writes this. But I, I also think there's a there's a character element here and that um, uh, Elrond has not ever truly forsaken uh, taking care of his family. Um, and his his brother made the incredibly, his twin brother, um, I, I feel like I really should um, underline that his twin brother so Alrond and Aro spent um, their entire childhoods together in incredibly difficult circumstances literally from the minute they were born um, until uh, until their their different paths split them in life um, Alros chose the path of men and so chose mortality and chose to die um, and um, you know made made a lot of his life he he was uh, incredibly significant but um, Alrond has to continue to live for thousands and thousands of years after his brother's his twin brother's death um which is a tremendously emotionally affecting thing to think about um particularly given the context of arwen and the choice that arwen is going to make um but um you know far more than uh the fostering of Isildur's heirs just being a sort of political decision um it is also uh El- elrond getting to um take care of the the people that his uh, the family that his twin brother left behind um which is uh, yeah, it's like quite hard to talk about because <laughs> it is very emotionally affecting. But yeah, it is really his chance to kind of um, keep watching what his his brother has brought into the world and like the goodness that his brother brought into the world uh, from the vantage point of thousands of years after his death. And Rivendell is a location that was visited in the Hobbit books that preceded the Lord of the Rings books and will be in the films uh, that follow the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, we see Bilbo and the Dwarf Company make their way to uh, Rivendell. Um, don't really remember much of it other than them dunking on eating salads, which, you know, whatever. That's <laughs> that, that, uh, whatever. I, I, I'll save all my problems with the Hobbit movies for if and when we get to those. Um, But one thing I do want to mention here before we close out is that there's this entire scene in the books that aren't really depicted in the movies and one that I kind of lament wasn't at least maybe an extended edition scene um, is the Hall of Fire, which is this great kind of storytelling and singing venue where everyone kind of gathers around. This is where uh, Frodo initially uh, saw Bilbo upon his arrival at Rivendell. Um, So I see that they kind of took the important, maybe the more important parts out of um, that part of the book and put them in just kind of g- generically in Rivendell for these. Um, but And I think to include it in the films, even in the extended editions, might mess up some of the kind of pacing and the story reveals that they were kind of saving for the Council of Elrond. Uh, so I can kind of see why it does, but um, it is a really just kind of neat location uh, within Rivendell. Um, and, you know, I would have liked to glance it at some level, but as it stands, it's, you know, it's, Whatever it was cut for the adaptation. 
Yeah, and and the Hall of Fire is um, interesting again because uh, it it gets back to uh, this elemental um, uh, motif, and uh, it's particularly with the elves and in Tolkien's work. Um, and I think uh, in a couple episodes, I think um, we're, I'm going to have a little more breathing room to be able to talk about uh, the relationship of light uh, and the elements to, like for example, the seasons and to the elves. Um, but uh, it is worth bearing in mind as we go through that, like. Uh, the, the elves don't necessarily discern a difference between like fire and the sun um, and and light itself. These are all things that come, um, you know, wrapped up together, wrapped up in one another. They don't have this like scientific delineation that I think we and like the post enlightenment world have. Um, and I think that plays quite interestingly into uh, the kind of um, dying autumn autumnal nature of uh, the elves of Rivendell. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. Sorry. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, Manuclear Bomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on. And again, if we meet the stretch goals, we can we will do a lot of batshit insane stuff um, <laughs> in terms of singing songs and recreating other histories and what have you. So speaking of Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can also find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I'm Emily, and you can find me on Twitter at JRR Tweeting. Uh, come have a chat. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. And I just found out that if you listen to podcasts on Spotify, if you listen to at least three of any one show, you can then rate and review there. So anyone who's listening on Spotify, uh, please do. Um, That helps us get the word out and allow us to create even more wonderful podcasts for your ears. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.